0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates.
1: Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to a bonus episode of my interview with Ted Buerta, the author of the new true crime book, Daisy Demelka, Hiding Among Killers in the City of Gold. So you'll notice that today's format is a little different, and that's because this is a bit of a crossover episode. You're listening to this in True Crime South Africa's feed, but it's actually an interview I originally recorded for Jonathan Ball Publishing's own podcast called PageCast. They were kind enough to invite me on to interview Ted Buerta, who's one of their authors, and I'm putting that same interview here because I know True Crime South Africa listeners are going to love it too. I covered Daisy Demelka's case pretty early on in my podcast journey, but let me tell you that Ted's book is just above and beyond anything that happened in that episode. It's really incredible, and I sat open-mouthed for many page turns. And the cool thing is that the book is not just about Daisy. It's a snapshot of all the killers and other criminals who were active in Johannesburg around that time. And it really is vintage true crime at its very best. So, here's my interview with Ted Buerta. Hello, Page Class listeners. I'd like to thank Jonathan Ball for having me on today to discuss the phenomenal book we're going to be discussing with author Ted Buerta. I am Nicole Engelbrecht. I am a true crime podcaster and author. And with me today, we have Ted Buerta, a prolific author in multiple genres. Ted is also an experienced journalist, having published in several high profile publications, including the New York Times, Esquire and The Telegraph. His books, of course, include Apartheid in My Rucksack, Flat White, and The Girl with the Crooked Nose, and of course, his newest literary baby, Daisy D'Amalka, Hiding Among Killers in the City of Gold, which is our topic of conversation today. Ted, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: So before we delve into Delightful Daisy, your books, as I mentioned, cross a lot of different genres, uh, travel, memoir, narrative, nonfiction. And all of those have different focuses with this this one now being on crime I almost think that some authors tend to pick their genre and fit their ideas to their genre and you seem to do that differently can you sort of talk us around your process when you have this idea pop into your head you don't seem to be scared to cross these genres and try different things talk to us about that that experience with your writing and ideas and that sort of thing well I
0: did think that writers like intentionally go out to find a genre i think the the kind of sometimes they're forced into a corner Mm -hmm. but i just find an idea that i i like the story i stumble across something as a freelance journalist i've done that as well i popped across genres as well and there's certain things that i just find there's a story there that i want to tell and i kind of say well I hope everyone else who reads it if i can find a publisher will kind of join me for the ride daisy is a case in point and i was researching opa in the 1920s and 30s and you know she came up repeatedly and i just thought you know this is a great story it hasn't really been told that widely before and then these other characters started popping up around her And they kind of complemented her story and filled her story out. And I thought, geez, this is such a a great era to write about. And um, that kind of set me on that path. And I mean, that's basically how every book I've written so far happens. It just starts with this germ of an idea that grows and grows and grows.
1: Having looked at your websites, um, you do a fantastic description in, in the book of sort of the environment of Johannesburg at that time. And looking at your websites, I see that it stands out that you have a love for travel. You seem to have traveled quite a bit across your career. How do you think that your travel experiences and meeting people in different cultures and seeing different places How do you think that sort of bled through into your writing, if at all? Do you think it's helped you to describe places easier, you know, with more detail and build more full characters?
0: Certainly, I think anybody's experience uh, in life helps them kind of describe things. I'm kind of one of those people who thinks that you can sit at home and I think you can build, you can create a world on the page that's just as good as anybody who has traveled the world because, I mean, people see things differently. I mean, you can have a world traveler who really doesn't see anything. They go to places, but they don't see things. Whereas you can have somebody who sits in a room and they read voraciously and they pick up everything in there and they can use that to create a world of their own on the page for other people. I mean, you talk about travel, but Johannesburg kind of has been, it's been a place that I've written about before in travel magazines, Something that magazines don't particularly like because they've always thought of Johannesburg as this kind of terrible city. I mean, Mm. since the 1990s. and But it's always been a passion of mine. I've loved Johannesburg. And suddenly that I came across a story that was set in Johannesburg. It was kind of, Mm. this is great. Um, I can write about this incredible character in this incredible city at this incredible time in its history. Mm. So it kind of brought
1: everything together. Great. And you've touched on this in the the afterword in your book and just now in your previous answer. Can you tell us how you and Daisy initially crossed paths maybe the project that you were working on at the time that and then how did you decide to focus predominantly on her with those surrounding characters of the other killers?
0: The thing that started at the germ of it all was uh, a man who was making movies in Johannesburg uh, at the same time that Hollywood was starting in 1915 by the name of Schlesinger and that was really the focus of my research. And then suddenly all these people had kind of opened up this world of what was happening in Johannesburg at the time. And people might not know it today, but Johannesburg really was kind of on the world stage or trying to be on the world stage at that time. It was the miracle of empire, it was the sunshine city, it was the city of gold. It had all these great names to describe itself, plus the University of Crime, which is is one of the earliest names that it got as well. And suddenly when I was researching Schlesinger, I came across these other people. You know, it was Houdini and George Bernard Shaw and a cast of characters that came in, and of course, Daisy, was lurking in the shadows there, and she was going about her things. And nobody really, well, nobody knew what was going on. I guess somebody close to her might have had suspicions. Mm. But for 20 years, she carried on doing these things. And, you know, Johannesburg was growing at the time and becoming this phenomenal place, or becoming even more of a phenomenal place. So when I started researching Daisy, there were these other criminals that started coming up who were doing things sometimes in a, in her own neighborhood, and they were quite incredible things too. I mean, characters like Andrew Gibson, who was an Englishman who came to South Africa and found this uh, lots of pickings of the guys who were out digging for gold. And uh, he was an incredible charlatan who just pops in and out of the story. And I just thought, this is just too much to not write about. Yeah. And so Daisy and the criminals became this other story that I had to tell. And so they kind of took over from the previous book, which I'm still writing actually. So I get to stay in Johannesburg of that era, but telling about the movies that were being made and the little Hollywood that was rising. It was kind of a nice combination of murder and movies. That was the original like mm. focus, but then the murder took over.
1: The collection of killers around... Daisy and the the way that you filtered them into that timeline because you know I'm I'm a, a bit of a fan of vintage true crime as I call it you know the older cases I was aware of quite a few of the cases that you discuss in the book but I had no idea and I found it so fascinating how you slotted all of those in and built this timeline to sort of show how each of these people were operating in Johannesburg around this this time and you know all of them there was this interconnectedness which was just so fascinating. How was it? Was it difficult fitting in all of those? I think you call it your your family tree of of criminals. Was that process difficult?
0: No, I mean, it's like any researcher, I think, or journalist. I mean, when you stumble across something that's incredible like this, like six degrees of separation between these killers, you kind of, wow, did that actually happen? Like, how was this person connected to that person connected to that person and so forth. And I mean, sometimes it's very tenuous, but it's almost like they all overlapped and it's not like Johannesburg was a small town. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of people. And strangely enough, also, which I discovered um, actually quite late in the book was that they all converged on like the Eastern side of Johannesburg. And, If anybody is from Johannesburg and is listening to this, they'll they know the geography that the east side is the way out to the airport from downtown. And you have places like Bertram's and Lawrenceville and Bears Valley. And there was a little uh, enclave there called Belgravia, which, if you look on a map now, is actually on the west side of the city near Brixton. Mm -hmm. So there was Belgravia and they all seemed, you know, Gibson- Herman Charles Bosman, Daisy Tammelka, they all kind of converged right there, and then, of course, the famous murderer that starts the book, which is the Foster gang, they were there as well. I mean, uh, William Foster grew up in Bertram's, so it was kind of quite fascinating for me there was no There was no reason that they should all have been there, and they all did move around you know a little bit here and there, but they all kind of stayed in that eastern area so um that was quite an interesting find.
1: Mm, absolutely. You know, you were going back pretty much a 100 years. What was your research process like? Was it difficult to find information? Um, you know, what sort of how far did you have to dig and travel and phone and email for sources for this?
0: Well, for me, the difficult part was that I'm not a historian. So I think historians know what to do, and they know what kind of archival material to go through and where to find the right things. So as a journalist, you're working on a much more superficial level, and it's usually an interview. So Daisy, of course, everyone is dead long time ago, so there's no anecdotal material. And one must also remember that Daisy was famous for several months. She had two trials. She had a preliminary trial in Germiston where they gathered all the evidence to to show that she should go to trial and then her trial at the Supreme Court, which lasted for a month. So, I mean, the information about Daisy really came from those two trials and that's it. So if you, you can't go into any kind of archive and find something else about what her favorite color was or, you know, what, who were actually the 11 children in her family and Those kind of things. So it was quite difficult in that respect, especially for Daisy. But then you've got to figure out how to find information about all the other killers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the one thing about South Africa is we don't have a great digital reference we can go to, archive. So if you can get down into the basement of, say, the Johannesburg Library, which has got incredible resources, but they're all on paper and they're all disintegrating really fast. I mean, I did manage to get down there, but. To actually physically go through the Natal Witness and the Pretoria News and the Star and the Sunday Times from 100 years ago is really, really an endless task. And you have to figure out. You have to find your dates, firstly, I mean. And there could be something, a morsel, a fantastic morsel lost in between two dates that you're never going to find unless you've got all the time in the world. And you can imagine, like, turning each one of these disintegrating pages over and so, I mean, that was the one problem. And then I relied heavily on books. So, I mean, it's actually quite fantastic how many books were written about that era from, say, the late late 1900s 1900, uh, to 1930, 1940. And there was, in particular, a journalist who used to work for the Argus called Benjamin Bennett. And Bennett was a crime reporter. And, I mean, he did a lot of other things as well. I mean, he loved aviation. Mm-hmm. But crime was his kind of go-to. And, He loved Daisy. So he did a lot of collections over the years and or until probably the nineteen sixties, and I think he might have died in the 70s, 80s. And he always put in Daisy. But you could even see from his writing that things changed from book to book. Mm. So you're thinking like he said that in that collection, and he says this in this collection, Mm. you know, and often there's direct speech, and you think, where did he get the direct speech from? And it'll change a little bit. But then in the end, you must think, well, it had to be, there's a kernel of truth there. So you kind of have to figure out what the kernel of truth is and go with that. And and hope that because there isn't much else besides that. And then for the kind of for Jobo background and for the Foster Gang and for Herman Charles Bosman and the other characters, I actually went to a lot of other books. And of course, it's a little bit here and a little bit there.
1: It must have been a a pretty huge undertaking, I can only imagine. You know, some of the crimes that I research are far more recent and I struggle enough. So hats off to you for all the incredible information that's in this book because when our listeners buy this book and they read it, I think their their minds are going to be blown by the amount of detail in there.
0: Well, thank you. Thank sure. you. I mean, when you're writing it, I mean, you've probably also experienced that. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it when you're doing it and then mm-hmm. somebody will come back to you and say, wow, the amount of... Yeah background and the facts and the detail Mm. is incredible Mm. um i mean it's it's also not great to overwhelm somebody with it but i mean if it's interesting you really don't want to leave it out absolutely and i mean there were actually two murders uh, researched which i found fascinating Mm. and i cut them out in the end because it was just too much and also they weren't really they weren't really johannesburg i mean one was about a a man called Hübrecht de Leeu, who was a town clerk in, do you know the story?
1: No, I don't. He
0: was a town clerk in, um, what was the town now? I think it was de Wetsdorp. Okay. And he was responsible for the finances of the town, and he liked money. So he kind of was stealing money out of the till, and finally the mayor and two councillors got him, sat him down one day and they said, you know, we know what's going on here. You better figure something out and come to us within the next week and say, like, how are you going to fix this? And his idea was he would get rid of the evidence and he would get rid of the evidence, the people who knew about the um, evidence at the same time. And so he blew up the town hall with the two councillors and the mayor inside it. And then these incredible descriptions in the newspapers at the time. I mean, it's amazing how much publicity it got that it's not remembered. But they kind of all these people running out of the town, or well, these three specific members, you know, with tattered clothes and burnt skin and, you know, on the verge of death. And of course, all three died in the end anyway. Yes. And um, Hubert de Leeu was this actually quite handsome young man who's married. And, of course, women flocked to the court to to hear the trial. He didn't kind of quibble over the sentence. I mean, most of the the, the killers that I came across Mm. who went to trial for the book, they all said they weren't guilty to the end. Um, But he was the Mm. one who didn't. Actually, Bosman didn't either. Mm. And he was hung. And it was one of the, I I found it quite a, because of the sensationalism of the trial, I just would love to have included it, but Mm -hmm. it was just too far from Jo'burg. Mm -hmm. And then the other was then a a a murder in an orchard. I can't remember where it was, Cloak or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. And it was a family who was like sleeping in the orchard one night on a hot night. They woke up and the father had an axe into his head. The police arrested a laborer who had been wandering around the property a few days earlier, and when the first detectives came in, they just they knew immediately it wasn't the laborer and they suspected the wife and it was the wife and she actually was acquitted in the end because he turned out to be the most horrendous man who was kind of masquerading as a church going peace loving, law abiding citizen and he was actually quite a scoundrel in the end who was a wife beater. She managed to get off in the end. So those were two quite interesting cases. And if anybody wants to read about them, I know the axe murder is in Benjamin Bennett. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about Hubert de Lieu. Can't even remember how I came across him, but I did find him quite
1: fascinating. Sounds like it. Well we need a need a book on that will include that one so you can you can start with that next. Talking about trials that were huge in the public in the public's eye at that time, daisy's trial was one such trial. It captured the public's imagination for several different reasons um, Why do you think talk to us about the sensation of that trial and why you think the public were so? Obsessed with the trial and you know queuing at the door to wanting to get in and I found it interesting that you said it was predominantly women because I feel like that was the start of the whole true crime genre in the world, you know which is still predominantly women. <laughs> Talk to us about that sort of obsession the public had around this trial, and was it just local or did was it did it cross over internationally as well?
0: I think it's important to remember that daisy it was a sensational trial in in not just South African terms. I mean, this is nineteen thirty-two. You don't have the you didn't have the kind of media stretch that you do today. And yet Daisy made it into all the major newspapers of the world. When she was sentenced, she was actually in newspapers like The Times of London, next to major, major stories about that were going on at the time, like Manchuria, what was going on at the League of Nations, you know, and there's little old Daisy sitting in the middle of the newspaper with all of that. I mean, I can't compare it to other trials at the time, which um, might have been as sensational, but I don't think there was any, because we're talking about thousands of people who were gathered outside. You had people who were queuing from the night before to get a seat, either to keep it for themselves or to sell it to somebody else. You had people camping on the lawn. And there was this And because it went on for so long, I mean, a month is not usual for a trial. I mean, they they anticipated the trial would go on for one week in the beginning, and it went on for a month. And week after week, day after day, I mean, this retinue of family and neighbors and scientists and doctors, they all came in and they gave their opinion of what was going on, and there she sat. And I think she also was she was kind of very savvy about what the media could do. There's nothing written about this, but just the way she behaved. I mean, the first time she came out of court, she waved to the people, you know, she was surrounded by policemen and she waved to the people and she smiled to them. And she said to one of the people close by, one of the policemen, um, you know, they've come here for me. And the fact that she was writing, a uh, what they said was a film scenario while she was sitting in court and in prison. I mean, this is very, very savvy. You know, somebody in 1932, I mean, they never started making movies about people. That's almost like the TV series that started in the 1980s, like basing a movie on somebody who had lived already. And this was in 1932. And then at at another stage, she made sure that she got the papers every day in jail, which Mm -hmm. I gather they allowed her to do. And she would read about what was being said about her and once they published a picture of her and she said, you know, this is, I actually look better than this, you know, tell them to come and take a better picture of me. I think she was quite aware of the fact that people hated her, Mm. but she also knew that she was famous. Mm. And whether she'd always wanted to achieve this kind of fame or not, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's all up to speculation, but she wasn't just this woman who had killed people and suddenly was on trial and sat there with her tail between her legs and her head bent. She was very, very involved. You know, she would have her notepad on her lap in court and she would scribble, scribble, scribble all the time. I thought those were very interesting things about her. And the woman aspect, I think it it is something that's mentioned in a lot of the trials is that the woman predominated. So I think it was kind of a... As Harry Morris, who's a fantastic character, I mean, he was her lawyer, one of kind of the lawyers of the world. He could have been on the stage with The Greatest because he just had this incredible way about him. He was very theatrical. And, you know, he wanted Daisy's case because he liked unwinnable cases, mm-hmm. cases that would give him an incredible challenge. Yeah. Like the previous cases, there were always women who... It was a form of entertainment almost. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Harry, Harry was one of the people who'd said, it's even better than the movies because it's, it's real, you know. And when somebody bursts out crying, you know, it's right there in front of you. Uh, when there's drama, when somebody shouts up and stands on the table, and, which happened. Yeah. It's like people couldn't believe it. And they didn't have the kind of movies that they do today. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this was it. So I think that was an important part of why a lot of women came. I mean, Mm. it was a form of entertainment. And, of course, the added thing about Daisy was there was a lot of vitriol and hate towards her. Mm. And, I mean, something that Herman Charles Bosman points out is that a lot of these women came and they saw Daisy, who was not particularly good-looking. And she would had three husbands and a fiancé. And... They didn't have any, a lot of them. So, you know, how did she manage to do this? And, you know, she wasn't happy with one, she killed it. Mm -hmm. She wasn't happy with another, she killed him. So there was also that aspect.
1: Mm -hmm. What you mentioned about her appearance is something that stood out for me, honestly, even before I read this book, and in other cases involving female perpetrators, but male perpetrators as well, is the sort of idea that, The public and perhaps to a certain extent in other countries, juries and maybe even judges, et cetera, are they will look at people differently if they are conventionally attractive. And certainly the media will portray, you know, there have been several studies done on how the media portrays attractive Defendants, as opposed to what is not conventionally attractive. Do you think that, and I mean, it's everyone's opinion whether Daisy Demalka is or was or wasn't attractive, but do you think that she would have got an easier time of it perhaps in court? And do you think she may have gone on? To offend for longer, perhaps had she been more conventionally attractive.
0: I mean, it's an interesting question. They certainly were aware of looks back then, because uh, even in the newspapers they said the the handsome Hubrecht de Lille, you know, came in, and there were lots of women around. I mean, they don't make the connection for you, but it's clear that those were qualities that journalists looked at, and maybe the court. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that all the courts were, of course, male. So the judge, the lawyers, the juries had to be male. Women weren't allowed till the 1930s. And even then, uh, they were used. If at all, it had to be like a certain type of case. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of sexism that went on. And I, I can't remember exactly the times that she was called ugly, um, I know one of her, the assistant attorney. To, I mean, the assistant advocate to um, Harry Morris, a young man by the name of Issy Mazels, He did say in his autobiography that she was the ugliest woman he had ever seen, which I think is, I think is an ex- exaggeration. Mm. Picture of her that every that is most known is her mugshot, and mm. like I said, mugshots are not the greatest time to have a picture taken yeah. when you've just found out that you've been accused of murder. So. The jury is out whether she was, uh, you know, not attractive, ugly, whatever. Mm. I don't know whether, I don't know, that's a tough question whether things would be different
1: for her. Yeah, yeah. I also think that, you know, when once we know what someone is accused of, we will look at a photograph of them. And project our own feelings about that alleged crime onto that photo. And I don't think we can separate the two. You know, I've often, I often hear about people talking about serial killers, et cetera, having these dead eyes. I wonder to myself if you saw a photograph of that person, you did not know who they were and what they'd done, and certainly not a mugshot would you still say they had dead eyes? And I think that's possibly what happened with Daisy as well. I mean, let's face it, her crimes were, and alleged crimes were atrocious. Um, you know, so perhaps it's a bit of a projection you know, of our horror more than whether she was really attractive or not.
0: Well, I think it's interesting to note that Harry Morris, her lawyer, who was this brilliant, brilliant man, said in his autobiography that he was struck by her blue eyes, pale blue eyes, and that he'd always thought that killers have pale blue eyes, which I found of kind of a very weird thing for somebody who is a lawyer to say that you can okay. say such a, a general pass such a general comment. Mm. Also, one of the things I wanted to say to get back to um why her trial was so famous or popular or mm. had to get into was the poison aspect. Mm. You know, because poison always does pique people's interest, you know, curiosity, macabre element to something. mean, one of the quotes that I got in the book was from a jurist years and years and years ago was that poison was like the worst way to kill a person because mm. there's absolutely nothing they can do to save themselves. Mm. Um, It's the the lowest, lowest, lowest of the lows and the hardest to prove because you have to find the poison. That's why the murders that Daisy probably in all likelihood did commit will never go known because nobody ever knows whether those people died of poisoning or not. But there was this trail of people who died really close to her, who died throughout her life, if there was ever a cause of death given or an autopsy done, was something else. You know, she had four children who died of convulsions and convulsions was something that was just very common back in those days. And convulsions could have come from anything, you know, from lead poisoning from the crib, The paint, the crib was painted with, or the toy was painted with, and they baby chewed on it, you know, and it was exactly the same result as if they'd been given strychnine or Mm, or arsenic. So she could have gotten away with a lot. And I mean, she was very, very premeditated. I mean, she figured out how she was going to do things. I mean, with her husbands, she made sure that there was always a secondary cause of illness that she could fall back onto. She always called in a lot of doctors so that they would all come in with conflicting diagnoses. That happened in the court. I mean, they all were called in and they all came up with different reasons for why so-and-so had died.
1: So during your process of researching and writing the book, was there ever a point where you thought perhaps Daisy was not guilty? And how many, in your opinion, do you think she was guilty of?
0: Oh, no, I don't think there's any question of her being guilty. I mean, that's for sure. And I mean, I think the the figure that not only I came up with, but other people was 10. Mm-hmm. I think people will have to read the book to figure out who 10 were. But she was only found guilty of one.
1: And that's an in- the interesting part about, you know, she's often referred to as a serial killer. And if she is guilty of the other alleged um, offenses, then yes, she would be. But technically, she is not uh, convicted. Serial killer.
0: No, that's true. Yeah. Exactly. One of the things that's said about her is she was the first white woman in South Africa to be executed. And she actually wasn't. People can read in the book about the first white woman who was executed mm. was Dorothea Kraft, who was also, for me, a fascinating character. Mm. She was the only person outside Johannesburg that I, although she ended her life in Johannesburg, in a suburb called Martindale, which I'd actually never heard of, which mm. apparently was an awful area she lived there i mean she was not a she was from a very very poor family she was married to a farmer out in lichtenberg and her story unfolds in lichtenberg after she becomes a widow and she meets this man and he kind of throws her life upside down Mm. and then she gets involved with a witch doctor, and so it unfolds. And I included that story because, well, I found it interesting, for one, yeah. and the lengths she went to to kill this man. Uh, also because she was the first woman. I mean, she yeah. was the one that yeah. came up before Daisy and was the one that Herman Charles Bosman actually compares her to when she's facing The gallows Mm. and he recalls when dorothea craft goes to the gallows he has this very kind of romantic picture he draws of this woman with this long flying black hair who who has to walk down through the through the men's cells Mm. at pretoria central to go to the gallows Mm -hmm. and you know i mean bosman has a very a very idealized view of Daisy and Dorothea Croft. And, I mean, Bosman's connection to Daisy is not particularly well known. I think people who read the book will find it quite interesting how he got involved in it.
1: Bits of information in here that even, I think, the most... Die-hard true crime fans who've looked into Daisy as, and the other cases in here as much as they like will still find information they didn't know. So, most definitely, definitely worth a read.
0: Yeah, and also, if I might caution people who go onto the internet, the internet is also full of wrong information. Mm. So, if you Google Daisy Demelka, you might come across pictures of a house that they say is Daisy's, which is not Daisy's. Mm. And another picture of a young, very, very pretty woman just getting married, which is also not her. Uh So um, I don't know how those things came in, but they kind of proliferate and over time they just kind Mm -hmm. of get embedded in the Internet. Mm -hmm. So uh, just beware of all the strange stories out there about Daisy because it doesn't need to be even stranger than it is because it's
1: pretty strange already. 100%. The nursing aspect, was is something I wanted to very quickly chat about. A lot of female serial killers, particularly in the US, seem to have a nursing background. And of course, Daisy did as well. Do you think Daisy chose nursing because this was perhaps something she realized that if she learned these skills through nursing, she would be able to apply that to perhaps things she might want to do later in her life, such as take her husband's lives. Um, or do you think that nursing really was something that she, she maybe fed part of, of who she was, you know, being in that caring role, perhaps being important attention and that sort of thing. Where do you think nursing fit in for her?
0: With Daisy, she I'm guessing now, because I'm. It's, there's nothing to prove this, mm. that she fell into things. She saw something and she took advantage of it. Mm. So she was very clever in that way. But she, remember, she was the middle child of 11. Mm. And then at the age of about 10, she grew up outside Grahamstown. At the age of about 10, she followed her father and her eldest brother To Rhodesia, which it was back then, or Southern Rhodesia, which it was. So I imagine somewhere outside Willoway on a farm. So I mean, a lot of questions go unanswered. Like why did her brother and her father leave the rest of the family down in Grahamstown and move up? And why did Daisy accompany them? And did other children accompany them as well? Those are not answered. I mean, that some of her sisters lived in. Uh, southern Rhodesia. Afterwards, when they were adults, there was some kind of migration that went on. And then at the age of some age, maybe I think in high school, she was sent down to Cape Town to the Good Hope Seminary, uh, mm. was a school down in in central Cape Town. And then she went back to Rhodesia and then she went down to study nursing in Durban. So she had this kind of, which I've also find interesting that it wasn't a wealthy family. Mm. So, I mean, here she was being sent to Cape Town to school. She was then being sent to Durban to mm. study. She went to the Berea nursing home to study and she was at that stage, also becoming involved with this uh, chap who was working on a mine in Rhodesia. Mm. And so there was this kind of overlap. And she said to him, look, he asked her to marry him. And she was in her early 20s. And she said, look, I want to finish my nursing first. She didn't finish her her nursing first. She actually Mm. married him before she finished it. Mm. or didn't marry him, actually, but then the wedding was planned. And then he died. Mm. And, of course... How he died is another question. And, I mean, there are theories that that first death, if that was the first death, kind of put her onto this path because uh, she inherited something from him. And there was also a question about how did she inherit that from him? Was the will actually done after he died? Was it done on his deathbed? So she never finished her nursing. How much nursing did she actually learn And the theory was that she learned quite a lot, but she never qualified. So when she became a nurse, not a theater operative, but I mean, she was basically cleaning floors and cleaning bedpans and rooms when she first started in Johannesburg Hospital. And then she kind of graduated a little bit more. She kind of was in and out of the hospital. And then she graduated to working in operating theater, again, cleaning and stuff. She must have picked up a lot of things. Mm. Harry Morris, her lawyer, said that she picked up enough about Doctors and the way doctors do things to know the way they would react when she called them into her house. And one of the things she realized was that doctors actually don't know much about poison at that stage. So if she had to poison somebody, doctors wouldn't actually be able to tell whether the symptoms were of poison, whether they were from heart disease or from some other kind of affliction, you know, stomach. uh, There were so many things at the time that it could have been. She picked up those things at the hospital, but she never really worked as a fully fledged nurse. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was always on the periphery. And I guess that also suited her because she could pick up things and yet not be held accountable for them.
1: Yeah, that's, it's almost suited her, her nature of Sort of drifting, drifting in and out of the shadows, almost. Mm-hmm. Which is what she did. For
0: Very much of so. Very much so. And also the way she, she started every now and then, you know, when it suited her, like when one of her husbands died, and she'd been living at home and being the, the housekeeper and the housewife and the mother, you know, when he died at her hand, she went off to work at the hospital again, you know, and it helped her earn a certain amount of money, even though she'd already inherited quite a bit from him. Mm. And, I mean, that's also another thing that comes up is her money, is that no one really knows where her money went. Mm. I mean, she clearly was somebody. I mean, looking at her, you'd think, well, she doesn't look as though she spent any money on herself or on her dress or whatever. Where did the money go to? And, I mean, she had a lot of money. I mean, it was thousands of pounds back in 19... from 1926 or 27 was the first uh, major murder. And if one translates that into the buying power of today, it was a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but the only visible things she got were a a car. She bought her son motorbikes. And for the rest, Mm -hmm. one doesn't know.
1: Yeah, her relationship with her son was quite interesting to me because, you know, if we believe that perhaps she had played a role in the deaths of her other children, maybe, maybe not. There's some good information about that in the book, of course. I almost got the feeling that she had such high hopes for him. For whatever reason it may have been, she'd she'd almost, he was the Daisy's chosen one um you know and she had such high hopes for him and he just seemed to almost continuously let her down and if we look at some of the personalities and psychology of killers we know today that are perhaps similar to what she might have been like i almost want to say the word narcissism where a narcissistic parent will look at a child as an extension of themselves and when that extension of themselves starts to reflect poorly on them then they they can be dismissed, you know, and that's almost the, the sort of relationship that I saw develop. Well, that was just my view of it between Rhodes and and Daisy.
0: I mean, the thing about Rhodes was here was the son who she had five sons, and so he was the only one who survived, and he wasn't the last, and he wasn't the first. He was like in the middle somewhere. So there was nothing particularly special about him. But for some reason, they chosen this very special name for him, which was Rhodes Cecil cowl so he got cecil john Rhodes's name and i always think that rhodes rhodesia connection somehow somehow she must have had some admiration or worshiping of of rhodes or in their family and here comes this guy that she's got these huge aspirations for and he actually doesn't amount to anything i mean she sent him to hilton as soon as she got her first paycheck from the first husband that died. I mean, she sent him off to Hilton. So she wanted him to mix with all the rich and famous and to have his future planned out for him. And after a year, he came back and he said, no, I can't do it. And it wasn't because he—I she's sure he was a bad student to start with as well, but he just didn't want to be far from home. And she gave in to him. And that kind of led to giving in to him over and over and over again. And he never was a good student. You'll see what happens to him in the book. And I, it's always, it always was a question in my mind is why did she let him live? And um, an interesting thing is all her victims were male. All the people who died in her proximity were male. Women apparently liked her a lot. And she had a lot of women women around her. Um, to call them friends, I don't know. They probably were. It's interesting that there was this divide and whether she had this kind of pathological Hate for men, and yet she married them. And it's been written that she was highly sexed, but they wouldn't use terminology like that in those days, and they wouldn't talk about the fact that she was highly sexed, but one can presume she was. I mean, mm-hmm. she had five children in quick succession, and she was ma- able to draw men quite easily.
1: So, something that often strikes me about vintage true crime, as I like to call it, is the more things change over time, even though we're talking about a century ago, the more things almost still seem to stay the same. Um, and we see the same sort of representations in crime happening, the same sort of motives, you know, women choosing hit men to kill their husbands, you know, some versions of poisoning still happening today. And then the Foster Gang, which was quite quite an interesting addition to the book, I thought, we could almost equate them to today's, perhaps less so, you know, cash and transit van heists and that sort of thing. Tell me about um, your experience researching the Foster Gang and why you thought they played such an interesting role in this sort of collection of, of killers.
0: Well, I mean, the Foster Gang was uh, the way where the book starts, and it's almost like it starts with a bang. So if you mm-hmm. start reading the book, it's like, wow, did these guys really exist? Mm-hmm. And it's also a reminder that Johannesburg always has been a place of crime. I mean people look at it today and they say, "Oh my god, we've got so much crime." But it's always been that way. It's been a different type of crime, probably on a different scale. But when the Foster gang was at its height and they were only they only worked over or worked the the banks and the post offices for a certain number of months and then the chase and you know what happened with them in the end. Um, But it created this kind of hysteria in Johannesburg that, you know, people were not going out at night and they were saying, oh, no, you can't go out because the foster gang is out there. Mm -hmm. There were roadblocks everywhere. Then there were heightened roadblocks. And then, you know, some somebody like came up to a roadblock and he didn't want to stop and he was actually shot and killed. And because the police were so nervous that the foster gang had actually Killed a policeman or two, and they were also fearing for their lives. So there was this incredible hysteria, you know. And it's interesting that all that also happened on the east side of Johannesburg, which, or a lot of it played out there, which is actually Daisy hadn't moved there yet. She was on the west side in Turfentine by then, Mm. but she had spent time in Bertram's earlier. And so, I mean, she must have been very, very aware of what was going on at the time and had been living. I mean, it's interesting to wonder what her thoughts would have been Mm. as possibly or probably already a killer that there were these other men, uh, you know, out on the, doing their thing. So it, it was just a great way, The Foster Game was a great way to start the book and kind of set the scene for this woman who's going to come in and play out on this, on the stage and in this theater.
1: Mm, Absolutely. It looks like our time together is drawing to a close. I'd like to thank you very much for chatting with me today. Wish you all of the very best with this book. It is, if you're listening to this podcast and you do not go and get a copy of Daisy DeMalka hiding among killers in the city of gold, that is truly a crime. And I want to thank Jonathan Bull for bringing us together today for this opportunity. It was incredible.
0: No, Thank you very much.
1: Sure. And all the best with all your interviews and events going forward. I really hope you found value in that interview. I highly recommend putting Daisy demelka Hiding Among Killers in the City of Gold on your reading list. It's one of my favorite true crime books for a while. If you're a bookworm and enjoy hearing about the story behind some of your favorite books, I also highly recommend subscribing to Jonathan Bull Publishing's podcast called PageCast on whichever platform you're using to listen right now. I'll include a link in the show notes as well. I'll be checking back in with you later in the week for more true crime South Africa. Chat to you soon.